0: Welcome everyone, this is episode 18 of the Brandon Adams Podcast. I have with me Joe Campanelli. Joe, uh, I have to say in preparation for this podcast, I was listening to a couple episodes of In The Drink. I didn't know about its existence till yesterday. You can guess uh, my first episode was my friend, David Foss. That
1: was a great episode, yeah. David's my business partner at, uh, at Lalu, and uh, which is my wine focused restaurant in, in Brooklyn. And yeah, I love hosting in the drink. I look forward to it every week. I've actually been hosting it for just over five years now. And there's some older episodes that you can find on heritage, but all of the more recent episodes uh, are on Apple podcasts or, or Stitcher. And every week I speak to a uh, a, a wine professional. Um, it's a big focus on winemakers, but you see people like sommeliers and wine directors like Dave Foss, uh, wine journalists like Eric Asimov of the New York Times. And recently I've been focusing on how the uh, coronavirus epidemic has been affecting the wine industry, which has been which has been fascinating seeing how everyone's dealing with it.
0: So the other episode I listened to was uh, Dustin Wilson at Verve. Um, so D- Dustin, I... I once had the pleasure of listening to him lecture on wine and I think you'd be disappointed to say that I I couldn't tell you the difference between natural wine and organic wine so since lalu focuses on natural wine maybe you could maybe you could explain the difference
1: it's it's a great question and I'm sure there are plenty of wine professionals who don't know the difference between natural wine and organic wine um, so let's start with organic wine because that's That's the easier one organic means that it's wine that's made without the use of agrochemicals Um, you can use chemicals for an array of reasons in the vineyard like herbicides and pesticides or you can also use chemicals in the winery and none of those have to be listed and none of these chemical additives have to be listed on the label of wine Um, and you can have wines that are practicing organic which they you know the winemaker will tell you that we do everything organically but they're not certified and you can also have certified organic wines um which there's a lot of different certifications some are country-based some are eu-based some are uh united states-based and they all have slightly different uh criteria for what constitutes an organic wine um the idea of a natural wine there is no definition of a natural wine. For me, a natural wine is more of an ideal. Um, you sort of start with organic wine as a base, but uh, the ideal is that you have nothing added and nothing taken away. So nothing added definitely meaning no agrochemicals, um, nothing taken away, and you know, no added yeast as well, which you can have organic added yeast, I guess you could say. Nothing taken away, no filtration, no harsh mechanical ways of doing things. Um, a lot of times natural wines have, have no sulfur added as well, uh, or very low sulfur. This is sort of a hot-button topic in the, in the natural wine industry, um, whether sulfur is an allowed additive. Uh, <clears throat> a, a sulfur is basically an antibacterial and an antioxidant, so it, it preserves wine. And in an organically certified wine you can have um, a certain amount of sulfur um, and natural wines some zero some uh, some without so it's, it's very hard to say uh, some people might uh, self-identify as being a natural wine producer and someone else might say maybe you're not you know to our criteria and, and vice versa uh, it's it's yeah it's this it's this ideal it's something to go towards where you're Manipulating the wine as little as possible, adding as little to it as possible, and really sort of making like a raw wine.
0: And from a big picture perspective, it's fair to say that if you were to go around Napa Valley, the the mass market producers that are that are making the lesser wines, by general consensus, are also the ones using the most chemicals in their process. Is that fair? Fair to say? I
1: think that's really fair to say. They're using the most chemicals. They're using the most machines. Um, they're not doing things in the most artisan way. Um, yeah, and, and you know, it sometimes it's a shame too because Napa Valley has just like some of the most perfect growing conditions. It's sort of easy to make wine in Napa Valley. You have an abundance of sunshine. You don't have a lot of uh, pests or. Um, humidity, things that, that might cause mold or fungus on the grapes. It's, for, In terms of winemaking, it's sort of one of the easier places that, to make natural wine. Um, but you don't see it as much there. Um, natural wine also has this sort of rebellious undertone, anti-establishment undertone as well. Um, a lot of the producers don't like to fit into the standard criteria for wine in, uh, in their appellation. Certainly not all. Um, And so Napa wine, Napa Valley wine, seems to be like one of, you know, it's one of these historic um, benchmark places, and a lot of times you'll see natural wine happening not in the biggest, most famous places, um, but in places where land costs a lot less, and you can be a lot more experimental.
0: My mom, she goes to visit her friend in Paris every few years, and Mm -hmm. she claims She claims that she can drink as much wine as she wants with her friends and not get a hangover. And she believes this is due to a uh, lower number of preservatives in the wine, but we can't pinpoint why that's true or if it's true. She also claims that what she's drinking in the, in the cafes is different than, than the same wine that's being exported to the U S and she brings this up at dinner parties all the time. And I, I, I don't think there's any truth in it. I'm just wondering if there's possibly any truth to it. If it's possible that like you could drink uh, a wine in Paris from a French vineyard and it's, it has less preservatives, if you will, than the same wine that they might ship to, uh, to the US. And also she, is it, uh, sulfites are the main preservative, is that right? Yeah,
1: sulfites are the main preservative that you see in, uh, in wines. And uh, a small amount of sulfite is released during fermentation. So every wine has sulfites in, in it. Um, uh, but most producers, the vast majority of producers, add additional sulfur to the wine.
0: And uh, and one theory of hangovers is that, that sulfites are, are a major culprit. Is that true?
1: That's for, for sure a theory, yes.
0: Uh, do, do you uh, place a lot of stock in that theory or?
1: I think the, the main culprit of hangovers is alcohol, personally. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do believe that if you were to drink a similar amount of wine with low sulfur versus a mass produced, industrially produced wine, you'll probably feel better with the low sulfur natural wine because um, you're not exposing yourself to whatever chemicals there might be, but um, there's also an aesthetic for a lot of natural wines of being lower alcohol. Not all of them. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, to contradict your mom. She sounds like a lovely lady. <laughs> and I love that she goes. She, hey.
0: is, a, she is a real uh, foodie. And um, her boyfriend is a sommelier. Uh, and they enjoy, they enjoy their food and, and wine quite a bit.
1: She sounds very cool. I mean, it's possible that she is going to the cool natural wine bars in Paris with a sommelier boyfriend. Um, you know, the natural wine scene in Paris is uh, is robust, and, um, yeah, that's possible. I just – I don't know of producers who make <laughs> a cuvee of wine specifically to ship around the world with tons of added preservatives and then one just – you know, of the same of the same exact wine, just for local consumption, it's possible that there are there are some wines that they make just for local consumption. It's you know that's her uh,
0: claim. I but I I, mean, I can't verify it in any way.
1: But it won't be the same label, right? It won't be the same. It won't be the same exact label from that producer. They'd say, okay, you know, we're going to make uh, whatever producer. And then that wine and then ship some of that same wine across you know the world and add more preservatives and the same wine in france without they won't do that no
0: my friend david foss your partner he he has weird taste in wine he likes to really go all over the map he likes to point out all right i just went on a trip to georgia and this is the new wine that i have and they it's orange wine and this is a he 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 is all over the map and he likes crazy um so you probably have to dial him down a little bit right running a business how does, it go? how does it go
1: yeah you're totally right dave has this encyclopedic knowledge of obscure wine grapes and by the way it's really fun to hear him pronounce them all i think i think he's pretty good at pronouncing these like rare georgian antique wine grapes um You know, when we worked together in Manhattan at my old wine bar, Anfora, um, we had a pretty obscure esoteric wine list for Manhattan at that time, uh, especially for the West Village, and people were into it. Um, But we did have to keep things a little bit more buttoned up. Uh, At Lalu, our guests want the strangest, want the newest thing um and so they they love dave's you know romanian uh you know heirloom grape variety or um he has wines from czech republic it just wines from places that you wouldn't even as an avid wine drinker you wouldn't think of these you know being top of your mind as as a place for drinking wine so i don't necessarily need to scale him back so much on those things but we do balance each other out. I like some of the more classic, you know, classic wines. I like wines that represent in the glasses really that sort of like elegant and beautiful and um, maybe don't challenge you physically and intellectually as much as, uh, at least physically, uh, as much as some of the ones that David's wines, uh, uh, you know, challenge you. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice balance between the two of us.
0: So I want you to go into uh, Lalu a bit and Fausto. I want to give you a compliment, which is that uh, because of my friend Dave Foss, I broke one of my cardinal rules in life, which is to never make a private investment. And I I invested in Lalu, um, and I've been uh, really... Uh, pleased with the way that you guys run a business. You guys are very uh, clear communicators and very organized. And uh, it's unusual, and it's a nice, it's a nice surprise. And uh, maybe, maybe it doesn't feel very good to be running a business at a time like now. But but you do a good job considering all of the things that you're navigating. So take me take me through the process of uh, starting Fausto lalu if you if if you want um i would be interested in getting the long history um you started some of the best known restaurants in new york city i can remember the days when lartusi was a very tough reservation uh you can go through um maybe the quick history of of your new york career
1: first before i do that i just want to say you know thank you for the compliment and thank you for investing in us you know we, we literally could not do this without investors and um you're really sort of like a patron of the culinary arts uh and you know we don't take it lightly when someone gives us their money uh we take that as a big responsibility and we really want to let our investors know that uh that's something that is, it's important to us, where we're being good stewards of it, we're being responsible, and we're communicating how we're, how we're using it. Uh, so I'm glad that, especially in the light of, all you know, we're being closed right now for coronavirus pandemic, you still think that you're happy with making this investment. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm happy to sort of start from the, the beginning of my professional career, which really started in, um, I, you know, I grew up in New York City and went to NYU. It really allowed me to get a jump start on my career uh, while I was while I was at school. I went into school thinking that I might want to practice law one day, but quickly realized that I had this passion for food that uh, I wasn't fully aware of. Even growing up in Queens, which was not very far away from uh, from downtown Manhattan, being down in in the city seeing farmer's markets, Uh, we had uh, something called restaurant week where you can go to a a three-star restaurant for lunch for $20. Being exposed to that uh, was hugely important uh, for me. And then NYU, I took a a beverages, a class called Beverages my freshman year, which was predominantly about wine, but about all alcoholic beverages. And, uh, And then studied abroad in Florence where I visited my first my first vineyards, my first wineries, and as a kid who grew up in Queens, seeing a farmer was just revelatory. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't believe that people were so connected to their land and grew things and uh, you know made this product that uh, that that was also connected to their culture and their history. They made it by hand. I'd, I I just wanted more of that. I took I took more wine classes there when i got back from florence i walked into italian wine merchants which was an all italian wine retail store it w- and it was uh pretty revolutionary for the time and this was 2004 um my junior year 2004 2005 my junior year at nyu and i bought their second least expensive bottle of wine and uh i was underage i was in college i obviously didn't have a huge budget and they treated me with this level of hospitality and professionalism uh, that I, I really hadn't expected or seen since then. Um, the place was beautiful too. There was one bottle of each wine on the shelves. And when you ordered a bottle, they, there was actually a dumb waiter that went down into the cellar and they retrieved a cellar temperature bottle for you. So my $14 bottle of Alianico was retrieved from the cellar, presented to me at, temperature, at cellar temperature, wrapped in beautiful wrapping paper. And they were just so friendly and hospitable and clearly passionate about Italian wine um, that as I was walking out, I turned around and went up to the person who was helping me and they said, would you hire me? I just got back from Italy. I think this is the coolest place I've ever seen in my life um and they uh they said no i've never had no (laughs) experience and and then i said well what about as an intern and i don't think you know people are offering to work for free in wine retail stores too too often (laughs) and they uh they accepted me for for an internship and from that from that job i really have made so many connections that uh had opened up so many doors to me later in my career and uh, great friends still to this day um so my, my next step was at the international wine center i was taking the advanced class uh at their, their advanced level and i wanted to do the diploma they actually offered me a job at the wine center in, in new york city and uh diploma was five thousand dollars i was at you know i was at nyu Not because I could afford it. Um, I was there the combination of loans and grants and scholarship and uh, and so $5,000 for wine class was a a big luxury and uh, they offered me I could do it for free so left Italian wine merchants did a year at International Wine Center started a diploma and uh and didn't really know what i wanted to do i guess i also skipped to the fact that my sophomore year in college i worked at union square cafe um a danny meyer restaurant in the kitchen and uh i i I knew i was like this burgeoning love for food and i felt that okay i love food i should i should maybe be a chef um that's what you do if you if you love food was my thinking i opened up a zagat and in the front of the zagat there was a compilation of two things one is the the best restaurants and then the other was the sort of the most loved restaurants and union square cafe was the number one most loved restaurant uh and i walked in there and i had this sort of like similar chutzpah i don't know where, i really don't know where it came from but i walked in i had lunch and after lunch, I went up to, uh, there, was a, there was a chef sitting at a table sort of holding a meeting. And um, her name was Emily Isaac. And I just felt like, she just looked like she was in charge to me. And I said, you know, I just love lunch here. I love food. I'd really love to work here. Would, would you hire me uh, in the kitchen? And she said, okay, what kind of experience do you have? And I said, I cooked at home a little bit. And she said, I, I'm, I don't think so. Um, but I also was able to figure that out through a, through a scholarship. And she eventually introduced me to Michael Romano. Um, and honestly that I, they're some of the greatest, nicest people, but I hated working in the kitchen. I, it was like, it was like factory work. You're making the same thing over and over again, uh, all throughout the night, especially when you're at this sort of low level. So, I determined at that, at that point that I'm never going to work in restaurants because I could, for some reason, only envision that if I'm going to work in a restaurant, it would be as a chef. Um, but it's through Italian wine merchants and International Wine Center, I, uh, I realized that, that wine, I wanted to have a career in wine. Um, and then I was working as a, uh, I was doing some wine sales while getting my master's degree at NYU and uh, for an all Italian wine importer called Vinifera. And uh, I got a call from my former boss at Italian wine merchants, this guy, August Cardona, who uh, we'd become friends at that point. And he said, hey, Joe, Babo is looking for a sommelier and you should apply for this job. And I said to August, I have, I have no front of house restaurant experience. Why would Babo hire me? Uh, and by the way, the wine director then uh, was this guy David Lynch, who was a hero of mine—not the director, uh, the guy who wrote *Vino Italiano*. And uh, I had read his book *Back in Front*, and uh, so I'm gonna—I I can't interview David Lynch for a job at what was the hottest restaurant in New York. And August said, "You know, I'll give you a good recommendation." And you did a ton of private events at Italian wine merchants. You you got this. Um, and so I, I interviewed with David. At, I was 23, um, and I don't know if they were desperate or <laughs> if uh, you know I uh, stroked his ego too much with you know a lot with the you know knowing vino italiano inside and out, front and back but uh they offered me a sommelier job at at babo at 23 years old with no with no front of house restaurant experience uh which was which was wild and not just a few months later like three or four months later august called me again and said joe you know i really want to open up a restaurant in the west village and i'd love for you to be my partner uh, and he offered me sweat equity in a restaurant at 23 years old, and I, I jumped at that opportunity. Uh, that was Del Anima in 2007. I actually lived above Del Anima for five years uh, until I moved in with my girlfriend uh, in a little, tiny little stu- uh, studio apartment right above Del Anima. So we opened Del Anima in '07. Lark Two and Del Anima luckily was super successful. We were. We were turning away more people than we were seating every night and um we were open until 2 a.m seven days a week uh which was wild we had a great uh we did a a great industry following late at night and really a great uh neighborhood i loved you know there it was great because i had the people in the west village were coming and then also from all over the city. Uh, and then there were a bunch of restaurants in, in the West Village. The West Village was sort of having a, a good dining moment. Um, and then we opened Lartuzi in 08. Uh, and luckily that was very successful as well, you're right. Uh, you know, it's funny, we had, uh, the Zagat Guide was very, it was so very, very popular. <laughs> and we were the number two Italian restaurant in Zagat but the number one was Del Posto, and then the other one that was tied for number two was uh, Morea. And if you know these restaurants, they are really fancy. Del Posto has a, uh, a piano <laughs> player. Uh, Morea is on Central Park South. And uh, so that we had a, a contingent of people who would come in thinking that we would be like a Del Posto or Morea. And... <laughs> And be disappointed that we were actually really, you know, a little bit more casual. Um, but we were just serving great food and great wine and great service without all of the, the trappings. Um, which which I really enjoyed being able to deliver that sort of level of dining experience without having to pay too much for it or, or without having to uh, really, like, dress up. You could just be comfortable. Um, we opened our wine bar uh, and in 2010 um which was also in the west village next to next to delani that's where i met uh luckily met dave foss i think he joined in 2011 and we just hit it off you know even my august would say from time to time you, you two of you should open up a wine bar together one day you two of you should do something together Cause it was clear we were just we just were such good friends and had such a uh a natural way about our, you know, communication with each other and our, our friendship. It was, uh, it was great. Um, and then in 2015, we opened, we also opened a place called La Picho, um in 2012, a week before Hurricane Sandy and uh, a catering company called Epicurean Events. And the, the model there was I was an operating partner and the wine director for the group. And August was a managing partner partner. And he raised money and, uh, and dealt with landlords and lawyers and investors and that sort of thing, Uh, which, which worked pretty well until 2015. Uh, He had suggested uh, a sort of structural change and had wanted to, and wanted to make a move and to leave the restaurants. And, you know, we worked on a deal to buy him out that got really far along. And then Yeah, at the pretty much at the last minute, he decided to change his mind and said that he didn't want to do the deal any longer. Um, And honestly, at that moment, I was extremely upset. I had this vision in my mind that I was going to take over this restaurant group that I had uh, devoted so much of my my whole twenties, really, (laughs) so much of my life to you know, I lived above the restaurant. Uh, I cared deeply about it. Uh, I care deeply about all the restaurants and, uh, and I had this great investor, you know, the money wasn't coming from me. I had a great investor who I was able to, uh, uh, to convince to write a huge check and, you know, we raised money. Um, and then really devastated when he changed his mind, um, but it, boy, was it a great learning experience! I mean, that was—I I like to say—it was, a, you know, it's a, an MBA. I thought at the time going through that deal and losing it was an MBA in restaurant business, but uh, opening up Fausto and Lalu became the the true the true MBA. But it was a great learning experience, and actually now that I'm in August position, um, I have a lot more appreciation and respect for what it's like to be in this position, uh, for what, for what he did. And, uh, we're still good friends today. Uh, it took, it took me a few months to, <laughs> to get uh, we're, we're good, we're good friends and I have, a, I have a lot of respect for it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to be in, uh, in, in this position and you have to make uh, a lot of people happy, but it was, uh, it was, a, it was a great learning experience. Uh, and then I opened, uh, you know. I, so I left in 2016 after the after the deal fell through, and uh, shortly after I left, the chef at Lartuzi also left. Um, her name is Erin Shambura, and uh, and Dave and I also started some conversations. And so I, I reached out to Erin and said, "Hey, you've we both live in Brooklyn. You left Lartuzzi. You're a great chef. Like, let's open up a restaurant in Brooklyn." Uh, it took. It took a few months to convince her. She decided that she wanted to spend the summer in Italy. Um, But luckily she came around and we opened Fausto in uh, in 2017, the end of 2017. And right around that same time, right after I left, Dave and I started having conversations about uh, a wine bar or small wine focused restaurant as well. and uh, you know, I honestly didn't know which was going to open first, if it was gonna be Lalu or Fausto. We were, we were doing them sort of simultaneously. Um, but uh, just the way the timing worked out with the real estate, I think you were in from the beginning, you know, there was uh, an original location that we had for Lalu, <clears throat> and that fell through. We had signed a lease, it was a, a great location on, on Vanderbilt Avenue, where we are now as well. And uh, they started. The the landlord bought this historic building on a corner, Vanderbilt Avenue. For those of you who don't know, is the main thoroughfare of Prospect Heights. It is uh, this burgeoning, exciting dining, uh, you know, dining scene. It's pretty much six or seven blocks long. There's three wine retail stores on this block in six or seven blocks. some great restaurants like Maison Yaki and Olmsted and uh, Alta Calidad and Chow Gloria, all these great places. It's it's where you wanna be in Prospect Heights, I think. And uh, so we, we lost this first location and then uh, March of 2019, we found the second location um, and uh, signed the lease March 15th, 2019, and then opened the end of June. Uh, Similar at Fausto, we signed, signed the lease September 1st of 2017 and opened December 8th. So I like to do, I like to do fast build outs.
0: I love it. So it's the perfect intro for us talking about the restaurant business post COVID, but I have to derail you for just five minutes. Um, I wanted to talk about books for a moment because you're writing a book about wine. Um, I am not alone in enjoying books about the restaurant industry. For some reason, books like uh Kitchen Confidential, they I don't know what chord they strike exactly. Maybe it's just simple. Everyone loves to loves food and wine and and they tell crazy stories about crazy people. Maybe it's just that simple. But I've found that uh post-Kitchen Confidential, which I'm sure sold Millions of copies. Um, I've found other more obscure books. Um, restaurant Man by Bastianich, who I want to hear about that I found very entertaining. And that that was interesting because he tells the story about the restaurant business and the um, the founding of 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 Babo and Del Posto, and he he tells the story of each one not just as a as a food concept, but as a as a business. And then uh recently I've discovered this author, Mark Buford. Yeah. So Dirt is his recent one. And then Heat. I just I'm 45 minutes into it. It's in my car. I have the audiobook. And that one uh is quite dated at the moment. I guess it's 20 years old or something. Yeah. But he. He is a journalist, I suppose, who has an interest in food and he has the concept that he's going to work for Mario Batali, I believe at Babo, if I'm not mistaken, and he's going to learn about cooking and the restaurant industry from Batali. I think that was the concept. I'm only 40 minutes into it. But but anyway, it, it sounds like that interview that you had for, for Babo, that was probably... That that must be like restaurant legend that that was your interview at 23 at the time that you had it and you got the job like that must have that must be seen as like uh like a fairy tale for people in your industry right
1: yeah definitely a legend in my own mind Uh, (laughs) I don't know if they they regretted it terribly after. um but uh luckily I, I keep in touch with david lynch uh to this day and he's uh, he still continues to be someone I, I i greatly look up to um and he actually wrote uh, joe bastionich was a co author of david lynch's book vino italiano um i would also steer you to uh danny meyer's book setting the table if you haven't read that one yet Uh, One of the things that I love about Danny Meyer and I I relate to him um, so much is that his goal was really to professionalize the restaurant industry and say, you know, we're not just a group of drug addicts, like, you know, like, and uh, misfits um, like this can, this can and should be a professional environment where people can have, long, fulfilling, sustainable careers. Um, even Anthony Bourdain, you hear him uh, speak. Uh, he says, you know, that's not me anymore, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's not sustainable to, you know, to, to live that lifestyle for such a long time. So, um, so I really love uh, Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. It shows the professional side of the restaurant industry. And I think we've made a lot of strides towards you know towards making it a uh, a real career you know i think 15 years ago maybe if you're at a party and someone said you know you said you're a, a server at a restaurant they might ask okay well what are you you know what are you, what else are you trying to do are you an actor an artist or something but now if you say you're a server at a restaurant it it's a, at a good restaurant especially like that's that's cool that's a career um, that obviously, every um, our, the people who work with us are, are multifaceted and maybe have other dreams and ambitions. But uh, I think having it be a, a professional place to work is, uh, is, uh, is something that I aspire to do. And I think that Danny really talks about it well or writes about it well in setting the table. Um, and then, yeah, my book, I'm working on a book on Italian wine. Uh, it's going to come out in the, hopefully it will come out in the fall of 2021. Uh, published by Clarkson Potter. And uh, I'm focusing on what are the the main topics that are moving Italian wine forward. If you love Italian wine, what do you need to know about that is most current and of the moment today? Um, Who are the producers who are moving Italian wine forward? What are the the regions? Um, It's a big focus on native grapes in Italy because italy grows a lot of french grapes like cabernet sauvignon and chardonnay which you know certainly delicious grapes but i think what makes italian wines so special is the amount of native grapes grapes that are italian and don't grow anywhere else in the world a big focus on organic biodynamic natural producers and uh, people are really making wines in an artisan method there's been a movement away from those mass-produced industrial lines towards more artisan methods. And so focus on all of those things.
0: And this is a book meant for people in the wine industry, but is it one that will be of general interest? Like will will I enjoy uh this book, or it's more it's more for specialists?
1: No, it it's definitely of general interest. It's uh it's gonna be written in a style that is easily digestible. So um I, I think it's not going to convince like if you if you're on the fence about should I pay attention to wine or Italian wine it's not probably isn't going to convince you of that but if you have a general interest in wine and uh, you're gonna you're going to uh, you don't need to be an expert but you're going to I think enjoy picking up the book it's also beautiful I've started to, I'm already seeing some of the page layouts. Um, and uh, we are working with a great photographer His name's Otter Thorson he's based actually in Torino um, And you know I'd also say if you have an interest in people as well in the stories of people we're focusing a lot on uh, on producers and telling uh, telling their stories and what makes them special I think there's there's not you know they, there's something interesting with someone who works uh, by their with their hands is connected to their land. Who uh, does something in that manual way? Uh, I also think there's for people who are interested in general in food production and food ways how things are made. Um, you'll you'll find interest in that as well.
0: So in your bio, it mentioned that you run marathons. Um, yeah. Bourdain was known for extreme exercise and Bastianich. He devotes, I don't know, maybe ten percent of his book to his various exercise regimes, which included, if not Ironman, then at least some marathons and some fast marathons. Um, is there is there any connection? Is it just that you feel like you you're around rich food and drink, and you need to go the other way, or it's adrenaline fueled in kitchens, and you and you you get that in the races? Is there any connection at all, or it's just
1: yeah, that's true. You know, this time last year, I was running my first ultra marathon, uh, a fifty k um, up a Bear mountain, and I planned on doing a fifty miler this year, but the, those plans are on hold for for some time. Um, I I think that running, especially sort of endurance uh, sports in general, put a lot of like daily stresses in in perspective. Um, you say, okay, I'm this. You know, running 31 miles seems pretty insurmountable. But then, when you realize you can do it, uh, you know, something else that might mentally seem very challenging and sort of easier easier to grapple. Um, it's like you know, it's a lot of running 31 miles is in in training and preparation, and then just wrapping your head around doing it. And I feel like that that's the case with uh, a lot of tasks. Um, I don't know what it is with uh, with with restaurant people. I do think that for a lot of us, uh, myself included, I would love to eat and drink. And uh, if I've gotten in a good workout or a good run, I I feel better about you know eating and drinking what what I want to. Uh, I'd like to be able to do that for a lo- for a very very long time. And I, I think you know I think that that helps with it. Um, But for, maybe for restaurateurs too, you know, uh, opening up a restaurant is a a massive endeavor and maybe you're just attracted to doing challenging things.
0: So for you, it's like the Zen aspect, sort of similar to the book, what we talk about when we talk about running. Um, For Bastianich, it struck me that it was, it was more that uh, he was, going down the Batali path of a couple of bottles of wine per, like he was going to excess. So he had to do a, a massive shift.
1: I've never been one for massive excess. Um, yeah. I've sort of been, uh, uh, always on the more responsible side, but I still, you know, still enjoy, uh, I, I really enjoy wine and <laughs> want to be able to drink a, a lot of it for a long time, but not, yeah, not, I don't think there's any, uh, yeah, excess is never my
0: thing. So Bastianich and Bart and, and Mario Batali, they, um, they had tremendous restaurant success, and then they took it to a real uh, blockbuster level with Italy and, um, or I gather, I think that they were the main people around Eataly. Um, at any rate, they seem to have understood not just food and wine, but also the the business aspects of, of food and wine. You mentioned that you're getting the MBA with, with, uh, with Fausto and Lalu. So you were in the process of getting the MBA. It was going well. The first year treated you very, very well. Everything. I remember one update where it's like, okay, it's looking great. Like the financials are, solid and the path going forward is excellent and then all of a sudden year two of your mba program it just all just all the wheels came off so when did when did you realize was it a sudden realization that the wheels were coming off and then it because there were there were actually two updates from walu during this environment one where the wheels were coming off and the other where the wheels were off so where, where was the, where was that transition point?
1: Yeah. You know, as a new business, we are, uh, we, we do cash planning on a weekly basis. And so Dave and I meet with our bookkeeper on, uh, on Tuesdays to plan, uh, to do cash planning for the week, what we're going to spend, what we're going to, um, uh, yeah, yeah, how we're going to use our money and the, you know, I remember having a, a meeting with the two of them and saying, you know, I believe this COVID thing is going to affect our business. And, uh, and so we should just plan for a little bit of a lighter week, like Dave, I, you know, I don't know if you place any wine orders yet, but I think you should cancel any orders. Like, let's, let's just be really tight for this week. Um, and that was Tuesday. And then and, uh, and then Sunday, we decided to close. So, you know, so would I'm, that
0: I'm have been, that. like, I remember the most dramatic week was the, the week where, like, Rudy Gobert comes down with, uh, with COVID, and, and then it turns out the whole Utah Jazz have, it and they cancel everything. And it was, it was sort of like, that was a Wednesday, and everything, everything was canceled by Saturday. And that was also the week the markets were going insane and and all of that, Um, is is that about the time?
1: Every day, things were getting progressively worse. So that that was Tuesday we had that that meeting. Uh, By Thursday, um, some of our staff started to get a little uh, nervous. And I remember sending everyone an email saying, if anyone is nervous about coming to work, you're not required. There's no penalty. We won't hold it against you. This everything's a big question mark right now. So you can stay home. Just let us know. Um, and that was Thursday. And then by, uh, by Sunday, um, that week, I think Friday, Danny Meyer closed all of his restaurants and Sunday, uh, Dave and I decided that, you know, this, it, it's the, it's too unsafe right now. Um, and then mo- Monday, we were, everyone was forced to close. So it happened very quickly. There was no, there was no, it went from like uh, day by day to hour by hour uh, planning. And really on that Saturday and Sunday, Dave and I were, were speaking uh, nearly an hourly basis.
0: And then from that point you found yourself in the, in the epicenter of the, of the COVID crisis. Um, And I'm sure things shifted from being concerned just about the restaurant and business to life and friends and family and all that. There, it was a catastrophic time and you're in the dead center of it. Um, And then um, you have the nation kind of, acting in extreme fashion at the same time and markets, businesses kind of going down. And there was a a big policy response, but uh, you have noted that the policy response has not helped restaurants as it might. Um, So what aspects of the policy response, and of course there's, I'm sure we're gonna be talking about the policy response for months or years and so far it seems like a not so fair policy response that it has been targeted to financial markets and not so much individuals or businesses but what what aspects uh in particular make it not good or not especially helpful for a restaurant
1: uh, before I answer, I, I do agree with your assessment that you know from the beginning, our our concern was really the health and safety of our our guests and our employees and, and ourselves, um, for that matter. So that's how we were making those decisions. Um, so the policy response that most affects us um, was a loan program called the PPP, which was administered by the Small Business Administration. So it's SBA loan 7A. Um, there's also the uh, there's another loan called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, which is 7B, uh, EIDL. Um, and the initial issues with the PPP were number one, that it was way underfunded. So very few restaurants actually received PPP. Uh, and two, that a lot of the restaurants that did receive it, uh, since it was an SBA program that was actually administered through banks were restaurants who had really good relationships with uh, with their banks. And so you saw something like a publicly traded company get 10 or $20 million, whereas like all of these small businesses were, were not receiving anything. So those that was sort of like the initial outcry over PPP. But then when you really dug into the details, the goal of PPP, and ppp stands for the paycheck protection program was to protect uh employees from being laid off and since this came out several weeks after we were forced in new york city to close our restaurant doors every restaurant laid off or furloughed all of their employees so so uh, if the idea is to protect employees from being doing it's, it already starts off like it's too late. Um, I think PPP was sort of designed for businesses that were affected by COVID to the point that they lost 25 to 35% of their business. And this would sort of incentivize them not to downsize because their business is lower. But for businesses that lost 100% of their employees, it didn't work uh and I can tell you why I'm not sure if you are, how familiar you are with the regulations around uh both using PPP and applying for loan forgiveness um the first thing using PPP 75 percent of the funds have to go towards payroll uh we're not we're not open right now we have uh rent we have utilities we have uh accounts payable all, our vendors uh we our payroll is very minimal so it's very hard to use 75 uh towards payroll the other uh, main aspect is that you have to use those funds within eight weeks of receiving them, in order to be in order to qualify for loan forgiveness. And then not only do you have to use those funds within eight weeks to qualify for loan forgiveness, but you have to hire back a hundred percent of your full-time equivalent employees, which the ft employees the definition for that seems to be changing but it's either 30 or 40 hours a week so you have to hire back 100 percent of those people by june 30th and the uh the loan is a big loan it's two and a half times your monthly payroll so uh you want to be able to get that loan forgiven especially with an unsure an unsure environment um you know on the other side of that whenever whenever this is uh, so then you say okay so you might say all right big loan you have two and a half time your monthly payroll it's in your bank account it's not going to be forgiven Now you just have a big loan which sounds not so bad and oh and on top of that uh, it's only one percent interest rate great like when will you ever find money that cheap uh, except there's a big issue with it the payback period is only two years and so a lot of people and, you know, in our situation are saying, this is not money that we can use, because if we were to use all of it, we can't have this huge monthly payment at the other side of this uh, where we don't know what business is going to be like. Um, and so there, there needs to be some changes. And uh, I guess the, the last really challenging thing about PPP is that the, the changes are happening on a almost daily basis, so it's very hard to uh, to keep up to date with and keep track of what's going on. Um, luckily, we have uh, the IRC, which is representing independent restaurants like, like ours uh, in Washington. You know, they're hoping they're, they're trying to uh, lobby for fixes to PPP, but we haven't seen any of them uh, come through yet. So as it is right now, we have you know, a lot of money in our bank that we cannot use.
0: When you say a lot of money in the bank, you mean you've applied and gotten it, but feel like you shouldn't use it?
1: That's correct, yeah. We have two and a half times our monthly payroll that we received as this PPP loan, um, but we feel like we, should, we shouldn't use it right now. Because you know, if we know, if they were to extend that forgiveness period, if they were say to extend it for 24 weeks, which is one of the, the top proposals, um then we could uh we could say okay let's use some of the 25 percent not the 75 percent for payroll or you know uh during that during that period of time they'd have to also get rid of that hire everyone back by june 30th because there's no point of, in us hiring everyone back by june 30th uh if we will just have to lay them off again once the ppp funds um run out and uh the other proposal that would help us out a lot is getting rid of that 75 uh payroll minimum so if you were to decrease that to say 50 or 25 percent, or just let us use the funds for any way that would help us reopen the restaurant that would go a long way
0: this is probably a stupid question but if you could like prepay people then you could probably use all of the funds for eight weeks I maybe that wouldn't be allowed, I would suppose, for like I don't know, you could use it up in eight weeks, but you're paying, you're kind of prepaying them. Uh, I'm sure that probably is forbidden.
1: No, you know, we've asked all sorts of stupid questions throughout this or all sorts of questions, you know, like should we pay people to sit at home? Right. And so we'll pay people that 75%. And we'll use the other 25 percent on other approved uh, uh expenses like rent and utilities um and should we pay people to stay at home there's there's two issues with that um one issue with pay people to stay at home is payroll tax is not covered by this so we're going to pay people to do nothing and then you know then we'll get hit with all the all the payroll tax the other issue is that uh unemployment is very appealing for people right now and it was very hard for them to get it the unemployment system was uh way overburdened so if we're paying people to sit at home they're gonna have to come off of unemployment for eight weeks and then hope to reapply for it once again um, and it's you know since I, unemployment is, in many cases is more than they were making before more than we would pay them. So,
0: and that is true because of the federal supplement to, to state unemployment.
1: That's accurate. Yeah. There's a, the federal supplement has made uh, in some cases people get paid more than they were getting before. You know, the idea of unemployment, uh, in the past has been to incentivize people to look for work because they, uh, you don't want to pay people to just sit at home. But during, you know, during a pandemic, um, I think the idea sort of shifted to we want to pay people to stay at home to, for you know, this pandemic not to cause financial ruin and for people to not have to like, go out and maybe put themselves at, at risk, uh, which I, I fully support. But uh, it also means that it's harder for us to bring people back. During this time.
0: Does the federal supplement that right now the timing is indefinite on that?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I believe it's 26 weeks, but I'm not positive off the top of my head.
0: The revenue side of things, um obviously it's bleak with the social distancing that it is going to be required once opening does start. We we chatted briefly about the Miami restaurant scene and they're they're doing some crazy things. Like they're opening but in some areas it's 25% capacity. Uh, you have to wear your mask other than the times where you're actually chewing the food. It's totally ridiculous. I'm not sure anyone's going to go out to eat. Um, I don't know if they're actually going to enforce some of the policies that they have, but if they do, uh, I'm not sure people are going to go out to eat. And um, I'm curious from a tour's perspective, um what is your break-even capacity if you're running on a shoestring? Because 25% capacity, why would you be open?
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, and I think if you ask a lot of if everything stays the same, uh, you, you can't make you can't stay open at 25% capacity. You can't stay open at 50% capacity or 75% capacity. It's hard to stay open at 95% capacity. or you know, the the so many restaurants run at such a slim margin that you really do need to keep people uh, packed in there. Um, the one caveat I would say to that is that this is all uh, based on uh, on what you can work out with your landlord, because as your business increases or decreases, there are a lot of costs also increase or decrease. You can you know you can adjust your payroll, your food costs, utilities to some extent. But rent is this huge fixed cost, especially in New York, especially even in in Brooklyn. Um, And so, you know, a lot of landlords are still waiting to see how this uh, pans out. And from my understanding, there's been no relief to landlords. Um, So they're waiting to see how this pans out before giving people breaks with rent. Uh, I'd say if, if our rent went down to 25%, could we make it work? I think so. Yeah, but we're not we're not there yet.
0: No, no, you don't have restaurants that would that would seem to be uh, well suited for dining out, takeout. It just doesn't seem like it. It suits the style of restaurants. Some restaurants are. I find I find one of the the bizarre storylines that because of because of the rise of dot com stocks and the high valuations and so forth it's it's sort of sort of a subsidized business like the doordash uber eats we don't know that that business is somewhat of a subsidized business by financial markets like i i think i think doordash would be one where they're probably losing a lot of cash but they um so um from the consumer's perspective it's cheaper than it might be to to order to order in um do you see do you see a, some restaurants staying open by doing doing a good dine out business do, do some resort to selling out their wine cellar like what are what are some of the the things that you're seeing in terms of emergency action
1: yeah before we were forced to close down uh, Fausto did a pretty robust delivery business through an app called Caviar. And, uh, and as you said a lot we weren't doing uh, any takeout or, or delivery. Um, I think that for all restaurants, this is forcing, forcing us to innovate and adapt to the current situation. And uh, I think it's going to be very challenging in the future for a restaurant to only do dine-in service and nothing else. Uh, uh, it's a really good segue to where, you know, we're starting to do wine, uh, wine sales at Fausto and Lalu. And those wine sales will also in- include food. Um, it's part of, actually, it's part of the mandate uh, that you have to, uh, you have to also include food with any wine sale, but we're looking at the food to be a more substantial part of the business, at least during this, uh, during this, pandemic time, but I think also going forward, you know, we're going to have to do more, doing a dine-in restaurant isn't gonna by itself, isn't going to fly financially. And so we're going to have to do more. And, uh, you know, also Dave and I have really enjoyed doing these wine classes out at La Lu. We used to do them at, at Anfora. So we've been hosting them via Zoom. They've been great. Our wine sales have been really successful. We've done two so far. We're gonna make it uh, uh, weekly. Um, every you know every weekend, uh, starting just with Saturdays, potentially expanding um, and add and adding food. Same thing with uh, with Fausto. We're going to be add uh, we're going to be adding food as well. Um, you can register for our Zoom Mind classes on our website, uh, lalubrooklyn.com. They're only fifteen dollars, and uh, they're they're really a lot of fun. And it's a great way. You know, these things are really uh, great ways to support the restaurant while we're while we're closed
0: when Um, when is the next one i'll I'll get on get on that that sounds like a fun happy hour
1: it's great next one's going to be actually on rose wines uh on friday oh on sunday um uh and uh yeah so it's 15 dollars. you can support us that way another great way to support restaurants is through buying gift certificates um i should say yeah sunday just going back Sunday at 6 p.m. Uh you can do our Zoom wine class on Rose Wines. And uh another great way to support us would be to buy a gift certificate. I kind of think of this as like a, a dining bond. Your uh your your investment, your return is uh is really that there's a better chance that a restaurant in your neighborhood will re- you know will reopen in the future. You're not getting a percentage on it, but um those are, it's so helpful for, you know, for us to have some extra cash through, through gift certificates, uh, these wine sales and the zoom wine classes.
0: So I have one last question for you, which is really about the, uh, macro environment restaurants in New York city. Um, as someone who loves restaurants, I find it heartbreaking that even a single restaurant will close down because I think in New York City, it really is a consumer's paradise in that you have hyper-competition for restaurants. So any restaurant that survives in New York City, I don't care what they do, if they survive for any length of time, they're awesome. In some in some aspect, they're really good because it really is a, a hyper-competitive environment and it would be a shame to lose... Uh, to lose a, a single restaurant. We know we're going to lose many. I guess my question for you is, is I look at the Lalu situation and I think a restaurant doing so well, they could have their fortunes change overnight. What is, what must this mean for the rest of the industry? It must be dire. Um, what do you see in terms of, if nothing changes from a policy standpoint, PPP doesn't improve. If new programs don't come about, what do you see in terms of failure over the next year?
1: If nothing changes, there'll be uh, massive, massive closures of restaurants. Like half? At least. Uh, I I, I don't see, um, you know, I I keep in touch with a lot of operators uh, as well. I have a a few operator groups that that I'm a part of and landlords are sort of all over the place it really depends so much on what landlords end up you know end up doing as well as they're part of the equation um yeah i'd say if nothing changes let's say let's say half uh it's it's rare that restaurants you know the restaurants keep a lot of money in, you know in the bank maybe you prepare for three months but that's it you know restaurants are are businesses that uh that operate on slim margins and when they are profitable you're operating to make distributions hopefully and uh you know for something that's that's long term it's it, yeah it will it, be really hard for people to to reopen i think that what's complicating this even more is that we don't yet know when reopening will happen um we know that you know, our governor said that restaurants will be in phase three of a four-part reopening process. New York City is not yet at phase one, um, and we just we just don't know when it'll happen, and we don't know what you know what will what it'll look like, what the regulations will be, what our new costs will be. Um, we're certainly I'm looking at you know, other markets both. Domestically, Florida, you know where you are. Um, Italy is reopening on June 1st. uh, All over the all over the world, seeing what everyone's doing. California has set some reopening guidelines. So, yeah, we're looking to see and try to plan, but it's really hard to cash plan and project out what our cash needs will be when we don't know when it will happen. We don't know what uh, you know what the regulations will be, and then the third factor that we really don't know is what the dining public is going to feel like. Are they going to want to go out and eat when we're when they're allowed to? Um, I think if it was today, you know, if people said you can come into Lalu tomorrow. The government said you can come into Lalu, and we said you know where. Everyone's wearing masks and we're sanitizing surfaces. I don't. We're not going to get the same amount of people. I don't know if we'd get half as many people as we would, you know, before this happened. So, um, so that's the that's the other factor. There's a lot of uncertainty right now.
0: Well, we're going to have to talk if you decide to come down to Miami. That that sounds like a fun project. You'll have to, you'll have to keep me in the loop. Um, that is that is terrifying and depressing. I have to say. It, I I we can only hope that they will they will come up with some programs to ease the transition. Now, if, if the appetite is permanently changed, then there's nothing we can do. It's heartbreaking, but, um, restaurants will have to close down. If appetites permanently change, if somehow people have just decided that their preferences are different than they were and they, and their preferences will stay different and they just like to eat at home more. Um, So that's That's one thing, but it's another thing if restaurants are forced to close because just structurally, there's not a lot of cash on hand and they're forced to be closed for three months. That would be, uh, that would be terrible policy if that.
1: I agree with that. And, uh, you know, I, I love travel. I love flying on airlines and I've been on a cruise, but like there, there've been industry specific, uh, bailout packages for airlines and cruises even though you know, those industries actually employ significantly less people than the restaurant industry. Um, we employ over 11 million people. And uh, forget about just the, you know, just in the restaurants, think about all the vendors that we work with, the local farms, uh, commercial real estate. Um, the, the industry in itself is a, a huge employer. And I think it'll have, you know, a big repercussions if you know if there are massive closures
0: we can't talk about the politics of this bailout because i'll just get upset and we'll end up talking for a long time so we don't want to we don't want to get into all that um but anyway i enjoyed this immensely uh i look forward to being in touch Uh,
1: i enjoyed this immensely as well i really appreciate you uh giving me this opportunity to chat and tell the story um of you know of, of my restaurants uh during this crazy time I still have some level of optimism I think that in order to go into the restaurant industry you have to be an optimistic person so um I I I have some optimism I don't think we're gonna it's gonna be the worst case scenario um and uh, there's some good people who are fighting you know fighting for this to for the government to to do the right thing here And, and I'm optimistic that it'll happen um I just want to remind all of, you know, all of your listeners or watchers on YouTube uh, that you can find out what's going on at Fausto and Lalu by following us on Instagram at Fausto Brooklyn and at, La- at, at, uh, at Lalu Brooklyn. We have a lot in the works where you have these wine classes, sales, uh, food offerings. We have new stuff coming out every week. And if you follow us, you can learn about all the new, all the new offerings. And uh, Brandon, thanks so much again. This was a lot of fun.
0: All right. I look forward to uh Rosé class with Foss on uh, on Great. Sunday. That sounds fun.
1: Sunday at 6 p.m.
0: All right. I'll see you.
1: Thanks, thanks Bye. i see you then.